it's true, isn't it? We are weak people. We fail all the time. And because we fail all the time, we need to be restored all the time. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we, we confess our sins. The Bible talks about in 1 John that if we, walk in, as, uh, as we walk, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Blood of Christ covers us from all sins. Walking in the light means walking knowing that your whole life, your attitude, your actions, your, your desires, they're all exposed before God. God's, God is light. He exposes all that we are. Walking in that light means not trying to hide our sin, but confessing and forsaking it, we find mercy. That's why in that same context, John writes that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So restoration is a, is a normal, you might even say a daily part of our Christian experience. Walking with God means we see our failings and we need restoration. And the good news is because of Jesus, He's faithful, He's just, over and over again, are we forgiven, are we restored? But this also has a corporate application. In other words, it's not just about us as individuals walking with God. It's about us as a church walking with God. We're called to walk in the light. And, and remember, Paul's writing to Corinthians in part to deal with some of the things that he's dealt with before with the Corinthian church. He's talking here in this context about the need for the Corinthians to restore one who has received church discipline. That is, he's been put out of the church after being called to repent over and over and he would not repent. And obviously, if Paul's calling him to be restored, the, the assumption is this man has repented, but maybe because of the, the heinousness of his crime, how bad it was that he did, the Corinthians are resistant to bring him back. And Paul's saying, you've you got to bring him back. You've got to restore this guy. And so this is the context, and there's debate about who this guy is. He could be the, 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 the brother that's mentioned, the man that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians who was actually involved sexually with his mother-in-law. And, and it was such a heinous sin that, that Paul had said, look, that doesn't even happen among the Gentiles, and you're letting this happen. It could have been that person who had been, Paul had said, you need to get that person out of the church. It could have been another person that Paul had been writ, written a, a severe, when he had written a, a severe letter to the church and gone to visit Corinth, there could have been a person who specifically called Paul out, treated him badly, and they booted him out after Paul left. And, there was, and Paul said, no, 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 restore him. We don't know for sure, but the principle still applies. There's someone who's been disciplined, who is now repented, and needs to be restored. That's the point. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to talk about what does it look like? What does the church that restore look like? What are three things that characterize this church? And so the first thing we want to see is the thing about the church that restores is that they do not, listen, they do not downplay the difficulty of restoration. It is tough business. Paul says in verse 3, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came to you that I would have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. Now Paul's being really clear. He's saying, listen, uh, when I wrote to you, he, I was wanting to encourage repentance because I was wanting you to have joy. Paul's saying, listen, I, I, I get nothing, I gain nothing out of you being miserable, either towards me or towards God. I gain nothing. I want to see you guys rejoicing in Christ. I want to see you guys walking right with God. That's why I've called you to repentance. 
I called you to turn back to God, to get these things right. He's probably referring to what he calls the severe letter here. He says, I called you on the carpet with these things because I, I, I wanted you to get right with God so you could have joy again. Peter preaches the same way to the Jews in Acts chapter 3. He says, he tells them, repent therefore so that joy may come from times of refreshing in the Holy Spirit. When God calls us to turn back, when God calls us to turn away from our sin, his desire is our joy. He's plotting, he's scheming, you might say, that we might have his joy. Paul's reflecting this heart. He says, listen, I, I, I wanted you to have joy. My joy comes from seeing you have joy. That's why I was calling you to repentance. <coughs> in fact, he says in verse four, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I so abundantly have for you. In other words, Paul says, look, my motive was not trying to make you feel guilty. He even says later on, I knew this would be tough for you to hear. It would be hard for you to hear these things. But my motive wasn't just to make you feel guilty. My motive was because I love you. That's why I agonized over this. Now, it's interesting because it's happened here many times at Servants Church where one of you has invited your friends to come here, come be a part of the service, and you've had to say afterwards, it's not always this harsh. You guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've all done it. I'm not embarrassed. It's okay. And, and, and I say that to you because I know sometimes when we're teaching the Word, the Word can be sharp and stingy, and you can go, oi, that's a bit tough to absorb. And we don't apologize for that, but it doesn't mean we don't agonize over that. Please don't think that Adam or I or whoever else is teaching doesn't kind of look at these passages and go, man, this is really hard to teach. Because this is going to make us all be exposed. We do agonize over these things. But we do these things, we agonize over these things because we love you guys. We want to see you guys walking with Jesus rightly because we know that's how you experience his joy. And because we love you, we want you to have that. Paul's saying this is, this is what we did. The thing is, though, we don't really love people unless we're willing to tell them the tough things. Did you know that? The book of Proverbs talks about this. In Proverbs chapter 27, you probably know this, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. See, faithful are the wounds of a friend because, you know, if your friend is willing to wound you, if he's a real friend or she's a real friend, they want to wound you so that you might be healed. The same way a doctor wants to cut something out of you. Destroying tissue or cutting through tissue, they remove something that's going to be far worse. Cause you temporary pain to have a more permanent healing. Faithful are the wounds of the friend. Paul here is saying this is the way it is. He's not downplaying how tough it is to confront sin. He's not downplaying how difficult it is to bring people to restoration. It's a difficult process. Studying this, I was convicted about two individuals, both of whom we have disfellowshipped in the church one of whom I've been in, in contact with and, um, and so have other brothers in the church and it seems that there is a real conviction of sin and still he's still professing Christ and sees that his life's fallen apart because he's walked away from God. And we're praying that this brother can be restored. The other one, and I haven't called back, and I'll be honest, I haven't called back because 
There's only a few of you here were here when we dealt with the, this first brother that we had to discipline, but I'll tell you what, it was two years of anxiety and difficulty. It was a tough situation. And I'll be honest, I don't fully trust this person. But if I love this person, I have to want the restoration. And so I was challenged, I've been challenged by this. Lord, do I love this person? I, I anguished with much affliction and anguish and many tears as we took him through the process. But the fact that he never really repented, even though he had kind of acted like he did and then came back and denied it all in front of the congregation, that was fun. Um, the fact that that happened and we eventually had to say, you cannot come here again. I'll be honest, there's a part of me that just said, I'm closing my heart to that guy. But that's not the heart of the Lord. And so I've been convicted. I've got to get a hold of this guy and see where he's at and call him again to repentance and see if he might be restored. At least, if not to our fellowship, at least to the body of Christ somewhere. See, the reality is Paul is saying, look, I'm not, he's not downplaying how difficult these situations are. And we can't. If we're going to really practice restoration, it can't be fluff. If we're going to practice biblical church discipline, it can't be fluff. In fact, it's interesting here because Paul says in verse 5, but if anyone's caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Paul's not saying that they've all caused him grief. He's saying the person who caused grief, it wasn't me personally that was grieved. It wasn't, like it, it wasn't an offense against me personally. It was a threat to the holiness of the whole congregation. It was an offense to that holiness. In other words, his motivation here was concerned with the corporate holiness of the church, not his own personal vendetta. That that's was, was his heart. And that's hard. I'll tell you what, it's very difficult because when you are in the midst of church discipline, and Paul experienced this, people don't like it, and they will call you in leadership on the carpet. I'll tell you what, I've gotten much more confrontation over the issue of, of church discipline than I have probably over any other issue. First, there were the people like, why don't you deal with this guy? I am dealing with this guy. We're just trying to call him repentance. Then as we deal with a guy and he doesn't repent, it's like, why are you so harsh to this guy? We all sin. Either way, and it's not easy. But the point is, can never be in our restoration what us trying to say, I'm going to prove I'm right or I'm going to prove that guy was wrong. It's got to be, are we corporately walking in the light? So Paul doesn't do this. Paul does not uh, downplay the difficulty, neither would sh should we if we're going to be a church that restores. So that's the first thing. Also, a church that restores, notice, listen, it pursues the priority of forgiveness. It's pursuing this. It sees forgiveness as a, as a major priority that we're to walk in. Paul says this in verse 6. He says, This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Now this idea of punishment is referring to the church discipline that this person received. He's saying, so that on the contrary, verse 7, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with too much sorrow. In other words, Paul's trying to be really clear. He's saying, listen, church discipline has to have restoration as its goal. That has to be the case. We've dealt with situations where uh, we've dealt with situations where other churches have kicked somebody out of their church. In other words, that, 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 that the person, in fact, the situation I'm thinking of where uh, a person was, uh, they were in sin, 
They confessed their sin. They actually went to the church leadership and confessed the sin because it was a heinous sin. The church said, you're gone. Be gone. And, and basically, someone in the church sent them to us. And we had to be in the business of, of restoring these people. And it was a difficult situation. It was tough. In fact, I'll tell you, the thing that was grieving to me was it seemed like, I'm not wanting to judge the hearts of the other church, but it did seem like they really didn't want it to go through the hard work of restoration. They just wanted the bad stuff gone. And here's, here's a problem when we do that. If we have a, a motivation that says, we just want all bad stuff gone, you know what's going to happen? People are going to hide all their bad stuff. That's exactly what's going to happen. We do it enough as it is, don't we? Let's be honest. We are so slow to confess our sins one to another, even though Scripture you know, encourages us to do so. Why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid. I'll get the boot. Well, let me make it really clear. We don't kick anybody out of this church for sin. Ever. We, kick, we, we remove people from the church because of unrepentance. Huge difference. We all sin every day, don't we? But we all should also be practicing repentance every day. So the motivation has to always be about restoration. And Paul's saying, you need to do this because, listen, if you don't, this person is going to be swallowed up with too much sorrow. This is the thing that, that I have to say that Adam and I wrestle with when we're preaching tough messages. We don't want to see you guys condemned. I know what it's like to walk in condemnation, to feel like, oh man, I, forget it, I give up, I can't, I can't do it. We want you to, be, to turn your face towards Christ. That's what we desire for you. Now, so Paul says, don't, instead, instead he says this, verse 8, he says, therefore, I urge you, notice, to reaffirm your love to him. Now, you might notice that love is, I'm mean, sorry, the word your is italicized, which means it's not, it's implied in the original language, but it's not actually written in the original language, which means this could read, I encourage you to reaffirm love to him. Now, here's the, here's the, the thing that I think is important. When Paul says reaffirm, the word reaffirm means to ratify. It means to sort of make an official, something, make something official. We, we have had this idea. We want to say this is our official position on this situation, okay? Now, he's not just saying let there be some sort of formal service where you say we officially accept back so-and-so. I don't think he means just doing that, though there'd be nothing wrong with doing that. I think what he's talking about here is saying, listen, let it be both your official and tangible attitude that you have towards one another. Let love be that. Okay, what's the official position of this church on how we should treat one another? Here's the official position, love. <laughs> love that restores. That's our official position. But we also want it to be our tangible attitude so that people can go, man, these guys are for us. We, we can be open with each other in this church because they are for us. They're not, they're not looking to boot us out. They're looking to help us grow. We want to be that way toward one another. This is where uh, forgiveness comes in so importantly. Paul says in verse 9, To this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, I, want to, I wanted you to, to prove something to yourself. I wanted you to see are you actually going to obey God in these things. Notice he says, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ or before the face of Christ. Now Paul here is talking, yes, as an apostle, yes, as something, someone official, someone who has authority, 
But also, he, Paul here is speaking, he's writing here as a forgiven person who forgives. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? A forgiven person who forgives. Paul understood that he was the chief of all sinners. But he also understood that God showed him mercy to be an example to how he wants to save anybody. God shows mercy. What motivates us to forgive, listen, what motivates us to forgive others is how much we've been forgiven. This is what the Scripture teaches. Check this out. The Bible says this. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, he taught us to pray, right? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's, that's our prayer, our corporate prayer. The Our Father is our corporate prayer. We should pray that together. It should, it should signify how we're going to pray together, okay? He says, also, he says a couple of verses later, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. For, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't think Jesus is so much putting a condition upon our salvation, like, oh, you have to be a, a really good forgiving person and then God will save you. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying this as he explained in the parable uh, of the unjust servant. He is saying this, our unforgiving servant. He's saying, look, if you've been forgiven so much by God, whom you sin against daily, should you not be quick to forgive others? Shouldn't that be our motivation? Shouldn't we just see, people, want to see people restored that we're not keeping hindrances against people? Again, I'll be honest, this is where I was convicted this week. Man, am I, is there a bitterness there against this guy? Or worse, is there just an apathy? I just don't care. Now, God calls us to be those who forgive. And this is wise, too. Look at he says, verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Guys, this is how Satan wants to divide the church. Satan wants to divide God's people, listen, through unrepentance and unforgiveness. This is how he wants to divide God's people. I've seen it happen with unforgiveness. People sin against each other and they get bitter. And so they, what happens? They get into their own little clique and they refuse to interact with the other people in the church and it causes the schisms and divisions and churches fall apart about it. I've seen it happen so many times. But I've seen it happen the other way as well, with unrepentance. Where what ends up happening is people begin to, to people are, are living in sin, they're continuing in sin. No one ever calls them to repentance. And so then what ends up happening is people get self-righteous. They think, hey, I've, I'm really not that bad. I, don't, I must not sin that bad because nobody's calling me on anything. But that guy, they're really bad. And you get this division that comes in through, through, through that channel. Either way, it's what the enemy wants to do. This is what the enemy wants to do. This is why we need to pursue the priority of forgiveness. This is, this is how restoration works. That we are quick to go, man, I need prayer, I'm messing up. I won't say what it is, uh, but Frankie was just really great this morning about saying, yeah, you know, we were talking about a brother that we've been praying for, and he said, yeah, I've been struggling with this as well. And I thought, what a, what a good thing. What a good thing to be honest, that honest, just to say, boom, there it is. Because Frankie knows that, that, that I struggle with things, and he knows he can tell me that because he knows I'm going to say, how you doing with that thing, bro? 
I'm not going to beat him over the head and say, get out. And, and this is the thing. God calls it to this, that we are pursuing that priority of forgiveness. Listen, the Bible says really clearly about our enemy. It says, be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He devours us through unrepentant sin, but he also devours us for us not being willing to forgive one another when we've sinned against each other. Let's not let the enemy win here. So, now Paul goes on then in verse 12 to continue to talk about um, his his how he wrestled with the situation in the Corinthian church. He says, furthermore, verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, that is, um, those in Troas, I departed for Macedonia. So now Paul's saying, look, okay, I was in Corinth we were trying to deal with these issues here, this unrepentant sin. How's the, how's the church doing? God sent me to Taraz, and God opened a door. There was fruitful ministry going on in Taraz, but I couldn't stop thinking about what was going on in Corinth. I was concerned with them. I had no rest in my spirit. So he's pursuing Titus because he had sent Titus to go to Corinth to find out how are the Corinthians doing. Have they dealt with that man in open sin? Have they saw him come to repentance and restored him again? What's going on there? I, I need an update. I can't concentrate on this ministry because I keep worrying about what's going on with that ministry. And so he's talking about this, this situation. And it's interesting because then in verse 14, he sort of bursts forth into this like prayer of thanksgiving. Now thanks be to God. And it seems a bit odd. Oh, I had no rest for my spirit. But it's okay. Thanks be to God. And you kind of think, well, what happened? Well, here's, here's what you need to understand. Otherwise, 2 Corinthians can get a bit confusing. From basically chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 7, verse 4, Paul is digressing from this kind of autobiographical sort of explanation of what's happened. It's called, it is, in fact, theologians call it the, the great digression. Because he, he starts kind of getting into why, we can tr- why they should trust him as an apostle. What we find out later on, in fact, it should be on the screen in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we find out that he did meet up with Titus, and Titus gave him some good news. He says, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 5 to 7, Paul writes, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, for we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he, comforted, he was comforted in you. In other words, what he experienced, what Titus experienced with the Corinthians. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. In other words, when Paul left Charas to Macedonia, he did meet up with Titus. Titus is good news. The Corinthian church is not mad at you. They realize they've got to deal with the sin in their camp, and they're dealing with it. And they're really blessed that you confronted him on this. And Paul's going, oh, thank God. Thank God he did this. So that when we read verse uh, 14 of chapter 2, this is what Paul's rejoicing over. Oh, thank God the Corinthians got the letter. Thank God they, they took the advice. Thank God that they're actually wanting to follow after him and do what they should do in the situation. 
So then he writes this, verse 14, Now thanks be to God who leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance, the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now, Paul's using here a, a military metaphor. When the Roman generals would go out and conquer a people, uh, they would bring back with them slaves from that conquered people. And some of those slaves were miserable because they had become slaves. Some of the slaves were happy because they had already been slaves under more uh, more of a tyrannical tyrannical, um, government, and they were happy now to be with the Romans as slaves. And then what they'd do is they'd come through and there'd be this processional of, of, of priests who would be burning incense and they'd be throwing out flower petals. And what would happen is, is as the generals would come with their horses and they'd crush the flower petals, the flower petals and the, and the incense would, would burn up and they, there would be this big parade and it would be the, the smell of victory. Okay. And so Paul's saying, listen, this is how Christ leads us. as like a conquering general. Now this is important because this brings us to, this metaphor kind of helps us with this third point I want to make about the church that restores, okay? Just so you're following me, remember the church that restores doesn't downplay the difficulty of restoration, but also it pursues the priority of forgiveness. But this is a third thing, a third thing that the church that restores does. Listen, it follows Christ in his victory. Paul has given us this picture that we recognize that Jesus is the one leading this thing. When the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that, that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews chapter 12, it's, it's this picture of he's the pioneer. He's hacking out the path through the jungle. No one's ever gone here before. The, the, the bushes are so dense, no one can get from point A to point B through this dense foliage. But Jesus hacks out the path. And because he hacks out the path, we can walk through it. And Paul's saying, okay, listen, here's a metaphor to add to the fact that he's hacked out the path. He leads us in triumph. In other words, it's not, we're going to go fight the battle. It's, I've already won the battle. Follow me as the victor. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul, in sharing this, first talks about, in verses 12 and 13, how he didn't see it immediately. In other words, if we're talking about following Christ in his victory, the truth is sometimes his victory is difficult to see. So so we can know theologically, Jesus always leads us forth in triumph. That's what the scripture says right here, right? But sometimes experientially we're going, I don't see victory here. This situation, this, this broken relationship, this, this sin in my life, I just don't see any victory here. Sometimes it's hard for us to see victory. And this is why it's, it's really amazing to me that Paul here, an apostle, says, I need brethren. I need Titus. I need to hear from somebody else that God's actually doing something. I need fellowship. I need prayer. See, guys, Christ leads not just you forward in victory, he leads us. Spent a couple hours yesterday interviewing my Hindu neighbors for a project for my university. Thank you for you guys who prayed. Lovely, lovely people. 
And one of the things that I've been challenged in studying Hinduism is how they really more accurately view themselves corporately. Not that there's anything accurate about Hinduism. Don't misunderstand me. But what I mean by that is, biblically, God calls us to see ourselves corporately. He calls us to have a corporate identity. He talks about the us, the we, that we are one body in Christ. And we, as Westerners, tend to think of the me, especially in modern day, the I. So the best-selling magazines in the U.S. are like uh, People magazine, uh, Self magazine, and all these kinds of things. Because we want to think about I. It's all about me, my life, my world. But we need to think about the us. And the Bible says, listen, God leads us. Paul says in verse 14, Christ, God leads us in triumph in Christ. Us. How does he lead us? As we come together and say, hey, what's going on with that situation? Has there been reconciliation yet? Has there been restoration? Are you, are you finding the victory that God's already purchased for you through his death and resurrection? It's that that we need to pursue. Interesting as well here, that in using this analogy, this, this military metaphor of, these, of, of this general leading forth captives, it's a picture for us. See, we don't like to think of ourselves as slaves, do we? But here's the reality, guys. Listen, we are in Christ blessed captives. Look what the Bible says. Listen. Uh, this is Romans chapter 6. It says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, that's obeying the gospel, to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, oh, we love that bit, you became, notice, slaves of righteousness. See, what the gospel teaches is, is that we are slaves to somebody, and we've been slaves to a tyrannical master, sin, but Jesus sets us free that we can be slaves to him, righteousness. You know what righteousness is? Don't think religious duty. Think love. We're free to love God as he is worthy. We're free to love each other as we should. We're free to love the truth as it's revealed. We're free to love the lost into the kingdom. That's what we're free to. We're blessed captives. This is what it means. Listen, notice, this is what it means to follow Christ in his victory. It's to follow him as a slave follows a master, but with joy because he's such a good master. See, Christ sets you free, not so that you can have your own authority. Christ sets you free to know how good it is to be under his authority. Now, I know some of us bristle under this. Maybe, uh, I don't like that. Maybe we shouldn't share that. Maybe we should share that, John, only in home groups, never in a kind of a, a service where there's going to be non-believers because they're never going to want to believe if you say they're going to be slaves. It's never going to work. No, I think it will. Because what has to happen is we have to get to a place in our lives before we come to Christ. We have to get to a place in our lives where we recognize that our current master is bad. <laughs> that our, our master outside of Christ, those things that enslave us, they're horrid. You know, this is why drug addicts and prostitutes and people that have been in prison, this is why they come to Christ quicker than decent Hard-working middle-class folk. 
The reason is, is not because they're more, they're, they're more, they're more sinful. Is that they know how sinful they are. Often what happens is they recognize, I've lived for myself. This is what it got me. Prison. I've lived for myself. What happened? My marriage fell apart. I lived for myself. What happened? I ended up getting some kind of disease. I lived for myself. What happened? I lost my job. This is what happens when you're a slave to sin. Not to mention, now here's how it happened with me. I felt pretty good about myself before I became a Christian because I was improving my life. I wasn't as bad as I'd been in the year before. But then I had this revelation from God, and it was a revelation from God, that even if I'm a good person, it doesn't add meaning to my life. And the reality is I'm still not that good, and it's not these people I'm accountable to as much as to Him. And I thought, is it worth me being a slave to my own desires, even my own standards of goodness? Then I'm going to face him. And I thought, oh man, I need a new master. And I can tell you that he is indeed a great master. He leads us forth in triumph. And what's amazing about Christ who calls us to, who Christ, uh, who, who, to whom these guys all referred, all the apostles referred to themselves as servants of Christ, slaves of righteousness, yet Christ called them friends. We, we recognize, we're, we're, we're like the prodigals, right? The prodigal sons, I'm not worthy to be called your son, let me just be your servant. And what happens? He clothes us with a robe of righteousness. He puts a ring of authority on our finger. He kills the fatted calf and he says, my sons come home again. And we think, Lord, I, okay, I don't, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but if that's what you call me, then even more so do I want to serve you. Because he's not just our master, he's our savior, he's our father. So Paul paints this picture, this military metaphor about what it looks like to follow Christ in his victory. And he says this, verse 15, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. You can picture this parade of Romans with the generals going through and the incense burning, the flower petals being crushed, and the slaves walking behind. And some people in that marching would thought, yes, free from that horrible land. And others going, oh, I'm dead. The same procession. And this is what happens with the gospel. This is what happens. It is to some people, life. Oh, you mean there's forgiveness? You mean I can be a child of God? You mean there's hope beyond this life? You mean there's something that's bigger than my experiences? You mean that's true? Oh, that's life. To others, the message is, what, you mean I gotta wait till I die? What, someone else is going to tell me what to do? To them it's death. See guys, here's the, here's the reality, okay? His victory, Christ's victory, it's good news for some and it's bad news for others. That's a fact. See, the fact that we would do church discipline, even, even church discipline that leads to restoration, that fact is death to people. Who are you? To tell people they can't live a certain way. Who do you think you are? Oh, I'm nobody, but Christ is Lord. 
Who are you to say to somebody that that person can come back? What, what, they can be that evil and then be restored? Yeah, because Christ is Lord. You see, when we practice restoration, when we are a church that does this, we're following Christ in His victory, but that doesn't mean everyone's going to go, oh, how wonderful is that? They're not. Quickly, a couple more verses about this. The Bible says in the book of Romans, and I'm quoting here from the New Living Translation because I like the way it makes it kind of clear in its paraphrase. It says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. In other words, listen, eternal life isn't just what we experience once we die. It's a quality of life, the life of God, that we experience when we are born again, and it changes us. It's life to us. I don't have to be a slave to my sin. Hallelujah. I can actually change. Hallelujah. It's life to us. So the message is life to us. But also with the death and resurrection of Christ, here's what else we know. The victory of Christ, here's what else we know. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Paul says, For God has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and has proved to everyone who this is by raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead doesn't just prove that he's God, but it proves that he's the one who's going to come back and judge. That's good news to some and bad news to others. I'm bringing this out as Paul's bringing this out because I think it's important for us not to have some sort of idealistic you know, view of how this is going to work. That, oh, we're going to love each other so well that even when we sin, we're still going to see restoration and everyone's going to think that's wonderful. No. Let's not forget the first point. Let's not downplay the difficulty of restoration. Almost done. Verse 16. Paul says, And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity... But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, he, he, this is good news for us. Because Paul's talking about his ministry, of course. He's be, going to begin to defend his apostleship, as we just mentioned. And I'm sure talking about his ministry will be what Adam gets into more in the next week. But this is what we have to understand here. Paul knew, listen, he could never be good enough to lead the processional. That's why he said really clearly in verse 14, thanks be to God who leads us in triumph. Paul's not, looking, Paul's not saying, follow me. I'm the general. He's saying, no, follow God. <laughs> follow Christ. He says, none of us are sufficient to claim these things. None of us are sufficient to, to be able to say, here's a victory of Christ that brings restoration. No one's sufficient to do this. He knew he would never be good enough to lead the charge. And this has application to us personally, and ministerially. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7. Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Jesus says all these evil things come from where? Within. 
and defile a man. Now, having five children, I can tell you, I didn't teach any of them to lie. But they were good at it from day one. Nor to steal, but they were doing it as soon as they could reach. Just like their mom and dad. Not because they saw us do these things, but because they have the same nature that we do. A fallen nature, a broken nature. We are never going to be sufficient to bring about the restoration that God wants to bring, but Christ is. That's the point. Christ is, because His victory isn't just put a band-aid over the outside, change the behavior. His victory is change the person from the inside out. That's what we offer to you as Servant Church. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, this is what we offer to you. Not anything that we can do, but Jesus who can lead you forth in triumph. Jesus who can change you from the inside out. Jesus who died and rose again so that you might be saved. So you might be changed. So that you might be restored. And this is what modeled, or I'm sorry, motivated Paul to do his ministry. He said, I'm not peddling these things. I'm just telling you before God, this is truth. Hand on the heart, sorry, wrong one. Hand on the heart before God, this is gospel truth.